that song, uh, He Never Lets Go of Us, I want to remind you of Paul's words in Philippians. He says these words, I always seek to strive to lay hold to Christ for this reason, because He has already laid hold of me. What an awesome reminder that because you belong to Him and He went hard after you to save your soul, that we spend our days going hard after Him, seeking to hold fast and to serve the Lord. What a great reminder those songs are to all of us. Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned... Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, the worship in the temp to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, isn't that interesting? Put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control 
and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Wow! What another interesting, exciting bit of information found for us in the book of Acts. Now there was a comment that I want you to track along these lines as we go through this narrative, okay? Remember first that there was a phrase that was made regarding Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 10. Y'all remember Stephen? That seems like a long time ago when you're in Acts 24. But this was the comment made about Stephen. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit in which he spoke. Now keep that in mind first. The wisdom of God put into his people and then the Holy Spirit that resides in us. And now I want you to think about a phrase that you find in Acts 24 regarding the fact that Paul had a good conscience before God and before men. So we need to put together two thoughts this morning. The wisdom of God and the blamelessness of men. So those two things are tracking. You track with those two things as you listen to Paul's defense before Felix. Why is that important? Because that phrase, a good conscience before God and men, is going to be found in the three formal testifying type texts in the book of Acts in this last division of Acts that we entered into once Paul got a word from Christ that he would make it to Rome. Remember, that's built upon Christ's statement in Acts 9 when Paul is saved. Remember that? When he moves from Saul to Paul, God, Jesus tells him, you're going to be in a, a witness for me all the way to Rome. You're, you are going to stand before kings. And of course, he's going to make it to the imperial seat, is he not? He's going to make it to the center of the power of the known world. At that time, he's going to make it to Rome. So, blamelessness of Christians was an important part of the case of Christianity in the New Testament. The early Christians not only outfought their opponents, they also outlived their opponents. Are y'all listening? And so that's the case of what we see with Paul in this defense. Wisdom, you better believe it. He knocks everybody off their feet. They cannot contend with this man. He's just like Stephen. The wisdom of God, the in-depth nature of understanding of the Word of God, but not just what he thought in his mind, which was given to him by wisdom from God, but the way that Paul lived his life. A conscience before God that was blameless, and a conscience before men. So, at this point, I want to call your attention to the fact that we're going to have to compete in this world with the religious flavors that are all around us. And you need to be competent as a child of God to know that you've got the wisdom of God given to you if you're saved. That you can stand up and defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That's one end of the spectrum. There's going to be attacks from this world against the gospel and what we preach. But you also have to live the life. You've got to live that testimony out in your life. And with all the moral failures that we see across the horizon of people in the U.S. that claim to be Christians, but they, they, 
They may believe right, but they don't live right. There's a disconnect there, folks, that we've got to fix. But here is Paul uh, before Felix. And why is he there? Well, he's going to go to a higher authority. Uh, they really can't find anything that he's done. And they, the Jews will want to kill him. But they know they cannot exact execution without Roman authority. And so they're trying to, their best to get this to happen. So the events of Acts 24 are detailed like a legal brief. Is that not true? We see this. And some scholars have uh, thought that since there's so much incredible detail that Luke knows, that he, got, he probably got more of his information than just from Paul. It's possible that Luke got to hold some court documents. And that could be true. Because he knows exactly what has gone on. And the history here is amazing. But the fact of the matter is, in verses 1 through 9, Paul is brought before the governor, Felix. And then we're going to meet a high-priced lawyer, Tertullus. The big gun has come to town. And he's going to be the one that's going to put this uh, actual case before Felix. He's got some flowery exordium information. You know what that means? It means introduction. He's flowery in what he says. He's like trying to get on Felix's good side. If you read through that, you may have just perused through it and you didn't even think about that at all. But I want to remind you, but that, this is what's going on. He gives this incredible presentation at the first to try to impress Felix so that he will agree with him that Paul is guilty. There's some manipulation going on here. Great, he says, reform has taken place under your watch, O oh, excellent Felix. Now we know that's not true because the Jews had zealots all the time that wanted to overthrow Rome and they were never, ever totally happy with what was going on in Rome. But he's given all this language and basically he's saying if you want peace and reform to continue, then you will see things the way we see it. You'll see that this is really a pest, Paul, and you will make us happy as Jewish people in the process. In the Greek, this is a polished introduction. It would kind of be like this. The exaltation of your reputation in impermeation all over creation, which brings us great gratification, and now without hesitation, I make my case. <laughs> Seriously, that's kind of what's going on right here. He's got the language and this is what he says about Paul. This guy's a troublemaker. The NAS says a real pest. It's really a lot stronger than that. The ESV gets it correct when it says he's a real plague. Tyndall gives the translation, he is a pestilent fellow. That's what they're calling him. We would say something like, this dude's an infectious disease. And that's really what they're referring to him as. He is a worldwide rioter among the Jews. Now, that would have caused Felix to perk his ears up. Why? Because they didn't want that kind of thing. There had been all kind of uh, zealot type of uh, revivals and trying to bring reform. And there's always some kind of insurrection going on. So he is playing, Tertullus is playing upon the heartstrings of Felix. He's a ringleader of a rebellion. And, a, and sedition. Who wants that as a Roman leader? You don't want that happening as a governor. He's the party leader of a heresy. Of what? 
The Nazarenes. Where do y'all think that came from? Jesus of? Yes. So it's the plural form. It originally meant someone that basically lived in Nazareth. But the plural form began to change. And it really was a derogatory term against followers of Christ or the way or Christianity. It became a derogatory term. Now, he's also, this guy, uh, Tertullus says, is a desecrator of the temple. He's saying, you know, he came into the temple and profaned it. And we arrested him. And in verses 8 and 9, he basically unfolds his so-called evidence. And it's simply this. He really doesn't have any uh, evidence, does he? So he finally says this. Just go ahead and examine him. That's his evidence. If you examine Paul, you'll find out just like we found out that this guy's a troublemaker. Now, folks, is that really proof? Absolutely not. What he is implying by this statement is that any idiot should be able to talk to Paul. And we know, excellent Felix, that you're not an idiot. So you're going to see, the same, you're going to see things just like we see them. And you're going to find this man guilty. You're going to find that he is public enemy number one. So Tertullus is confident that once Paul opens his mouth, that he will see that this guy is incredibly dangerous. The bottom line, you will see for yourself, it's not, uh, and that's not evidence. So the Jews come in and begin to say, that's right, all this is true. This guy is tops on the list for the center of disease control. Let's get rid of this guy, is what they're all saying. He needs to be stopped And then in 10 through 13, we see the beginning of Paul's defense. Did y'all notice that his exordium is a whole lot shorter? And he doesn't give any flowery language about Felix. He just basically gets to the point of what is at stake. So Paul basically starts off by saying, I started off and I am continually worshiping the Lord. That's basically how Paul summarizes what he is doing As a believer, he is worshiping the Lord. I wasn't stirring up anything. I wasn't engaging in any kind of dissension. I am not guilty of allegations. The allegations that they're saying that I'm guilty of. So he basically enters a not guilty plea. He's saying, I am not guilty at all of these charges. And here's Paul's confession. Not of guilt, but of faith. Here's Paul's confession. I worship who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, according, check this out, to the way. What they call is a sect, but I'm telling you this expression, the way, is a designation of Christian faith. And Paul is saying the way is connected to the entire Bible. Right? This is what he is saying to them. It comes to us, the way, most likely, From two declarations from Christ. One is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And what does the Bible say? Narrow is the... Yes, sir, brother. Narrow is the way. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And what would be the other verse of Scripture that all of us should know? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So... There's a good chance that based upon those two in particular, that's where the phrase, the way, and that was the earliest designation of what we would be called today. 
we would be called people of the way. This was before you had terminology like Christian in Acts 11. So the Jewish leaders are calling this a heresy. But Paul is saying to us, in reality, the way is in accord with the law and the prophets. This defense is absolutely indispensable for us to understand the nature of the Christian faith. Y'all see that, don't you? This is indispensable for us to gather an apostolic understanding of what our faith really is. Jesus said, I did not come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So, is there something new about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Speak up. Well, yes, there is, in a sense. I give to you a, a new covenant in my blood. So, there is absolutely something new. However, there's also something gloriously old about the gospel. And what Paul is laboring to do is to demonstrate that the gospel, check this out, the message of Jesus, i.e. the message of the Old Testament, right? The message of Jesus is not brand new in the sense that it simply emerged from someone's imagination. The gospel in Jesus Christ is nothing less than the fulfillment of everything promised by the Bible regarding the Messiah. Ma'am, is Paul sharp or what? He knows what he's doing because he's led by the Holy Spirit of God. It's nothing less than the fulfillment of everything promised from Genesis to Malachi. All the way from Genesis 3.15. All the way through to Malachi. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. He is the fruition of divine plan. Not only made to Abraham, but also made to Moses. And also made to David. And all the prophets. They all spoke of these days. And as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, Abraham saw these days and rejoiced in his coming. They knew it. They saw it. So Paul's defense is critical for us to know how the apostles saw the Christian faith. They didn't see the Christian faith as unhinged or unhitched from the Old Testament. It was absolutely fulfillment of everything that was found from Genesis to Malachi. This is no Johnny-come-lately religion. That's what Paul was reminding them of. It's not some new sect. It was nothing less than the fulfillment of all the law and prophets which the saints have waited for for centuries. Do you remember Simeon? As he held the Christ child in his arms? Behold the consolation of Israel. Isn't that awesome? The very hope of Israel. Paul continues by stating that I've got a hope. Now the Sadducees don't. That's why they're sad, you see. But one group in here that is putting me on trial, the Pharisees, we hold something together. We believe in a general resurrection. Now, if you remember right, this was a contention that started the, uh, the fight between the Pharisees and Sadducees with the Sanhedrin a few chapters before because they're ticked off. Paul is smart enough. He's shrewd. And he says, well, hey, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the hope of Israel. And he continually, in the Greek text, in the, in, in the tense of the verb, is doing this over and over and over again. I believe in the resurrection. So, I'm actually on trial for something that I share in common with these people. It's the belief, listen folks, that one of these days the dead will be raised. The righteous and the wicked. And they will be judged. So when he mentions the general revelation, what is... What he's getting at is there's going to be a final 
judgment one day. I tell you, again, rocket man won't end the world. God will end the world. He's in control. And so he's the ultimate judge. One of these days God will raise up the righteous and the wicked, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the prince and the pauper, and we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Of course, if you're a believer, it's before the judgment seat, Bema. But if you're lost, it's before the great white throne judgment. And Paul says, I'm on trial for this belief in the general resurrection. So in view of this, in verse 16, 24, the Bible says, So I always take, now look, check this out, church family. In view of that day that's coming in the future for everybody in this room. In view of that, I take great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Oof. Does that hurt you? It should. It should hit us, all of us. Righteous and the wicked, day of judgment. God will unveil the secrets of men's hearts. Paul says, I live my passion. I live my life in passion and goal to have a good conscience with God and men. All right, let's get down to the brass tacks at this point. I live my life knowing full well that I will, Paul says, stand before the Lord God of the earth. And therefore, I make it my utmost priority to maintain a good conscience with God and men. I understand that one of these days I'm going to give an account for my life before God. I labor that there's no controversy between me and the Lord God. That means, as the old country preacher once said, you got to stay fessed up. That's what should happen in worship. Worship's not about you. It's about God. And in light of that worship, God begins to put the magnifying glass on your heart. When you start to sing songs in this auditorium, there ought to be some reflection going on. There ought to be some warfare going on. shouldn't be thinking about the party you had on the 4th of July. It ought to be the fact that one of these days you're going to stand before the great king, the judge. He's not going to be like Felix. He's the God of all the earth. He's the God of heaven and earth. And everybody in this room, one of these days, you're going to stand before him. You can take that to the bank. Everybody is going to stand before him. Paul says, I live my life in a state of repentance. Not only confession. You think, well, I got that right years ago, preacher. 30 years ago, I repented. Well, if you're not repenting today, you didn't repent then. I promise you, you didn't. You can't be a believer and not live in a habitual pattern of confession and repentance before God. Because although we stand justified before God, you're still in a standing, you're still in a state of being a sinner. The glory of justification is that God gives you a standing of righteousness. And when He looks at you, He sees you as having lived the law perfectly. And not because of you, but because of Jesus. And His righteousness... I am conscious of the Spirit's work in my life. And Paul says, I don't want anything standing in the way of the fellowship of me and the Lord. Like, try my heart and know my ways. Try my thoughts. This is what Paul is saying. Is this how we live, church family? Is this how we live? Does this really actually grip you? Do you wake up every day thinking, God, you gave me another day and my utmost priority is to live with a good conscience before you and my brother? Wow. That's, that's tough, isn't it? But not just God. How about your brother and your sister? 
Do you have a fundamental commitment in your life that drives you to be right with the Lord and your neighbor? Or somebody in this church body? I'm satisfied that if we put a grudge detector in those doors back there, that thing would beep every time you walked in the door. Because I'm serious. I'm sure you have some beep, beep, beep. I'm doing good today. Preach, beep. You know, I got it all good. My conscience is right between me and God and me and my brother. Well, Paul lived as best he could with an attitude, I want to be right with other people. You know what? It actually affected the way he discharged the gospel. Did it not? We know this from the Bible. It affected the way he did this. To maintain a good conscience with men must mean first that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because you can't be in right relationship with your brother if you're ashamed of the gospel. And as he dispensed it, he did it freely. Not worrying about, uh, am I going to hurt this person's feelings? Or he knew full well the way to be right before a brother is to give them the gospel. Clearly, unashamedly. Do you remember... What Paul said in Acts, my hands are actually free from the blood of all men. Isn't that amazing? That he could say, I dispense the glorious gospel to men and my hands are free. The other element is to what uh, would Paul say to us, we, are we living at peace with people? Now I want to ask you a question, did Paul have enemies? Folks, he's on trial because he's made some enemies. That's the purpose of the trial. Were there people that Paul could not be reconciled with? You better believe it. But as it depends upon him, he had a desire to be at peace with all men. And look, folks, I don't, I don't, it's just the way it is. I'm sure that at this church, there's been contention as I preach the word between me and you. But I'm telling you, you're not going to stand before this preacher one day. If I could preach you out of hell and into heaven, I would do it. But I can't. I'm not the one you're going to answer to. You're going to answer to the king. But here's one thing that I knew when God called me to this church. There was a particular task that God gave me. It wasn't Branson. It wasn't the Ozarks. It was to preach this book. Period. And obediently preach this book. I knew it as if God didn't speak audibly. But when Natalie asked me that question, why are we going? I said, there's one reason to preach the word. Period. And here's what I would tell you. I've got a clear conscience today before God and you that I've preached what this book says. And I won't apologize, and I'm not ashamed of it. Amen? Amen. Paul's in this, con- this situation where he, has to, he knows that he wants to be at peace with all men, but sometimes the truth divides. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us that. For this purpose I have come into this earth. And it's going to divide. Truth will divide. There's no question about it. But Acts 24, 16 should be a life verse for all of us. That convicts our hearts deeply. How often do we skate over issues that we know are not right with our Heavenly Father? How often do we do that? We're all guilty. How about our relationships with other people? Perhaps someone even in this body of believers in this building today... That you know you just keep skating over it. I want to remind you folks. To what it, what it means to have a clear conscience for God and men. As you get that issue right. No matter what it is. Paul could not let his head hit his pillow at night. If he knew something was wrong. We've just kind of been desensitized to that. Haven't we? We don't think about the Lord. Now is the conscience. 
an infallible monitor? No, it's not. But it is an authoritative monitor, right? It is a, uh, an authoritative moral monitor. As Martin Luther the Reformer said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. All right. Y'all tired of that one? No, I am. It hurt me. So, 17 through 21, Paul explains what really happened in the temple. Uh, he's basically saying there's, they're not telling the story correctly. The right story is that I've done nothing wrong. Just notice how he reminds them of that. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. I'm just worshiping. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. Y'all remember that story? Uh, James and the elders say, Paul, to show them that you're not dissing Judaism, we want you to take this vow with a few brothers. Now, did Paul have to do this? No, he didn't do it, but he did it. Why? That by all means, some might come to know Christ. So he willingly takes this vow. He's saying, look, I've done everything to fall in line with Jewish ceremonial rites so that they will understand the gospel and nothing will be a hindrance. I've just been worshiping the Lord. That's what Paul reminds us of. One commentator said, Paul says, I'm on trial for supporting Israel. That's giving alms to the temple. And I'm on trial for Israel's faith. That's why I'm on trial. Now, in verses 22 through 27, Felix puts the verdict off. Uh, isn't it interesting to say that he had an accurate, a more accurate understanding of the way? Why do y'all think that's the case? Who was he married to? Uh, did this happen in a vacuum? We know better, right? We know it happened. It wasn't, Paul said this didn't happen somewhere over in the corner. So he's married to a Jewish, Drusilla. And there's no question that she had probably talked to him about it. And he knew full well what was going on. That the Messiah was promised in the word of God. That he would come. That he would be God in the flesh. That he would be crucified. That he would rise again from the dead. And so here is Felix with some understanding of the way. He places him again in Roman custody until Lysias. Y'all remember him? That's the commanding officer that knew all the details. And Felix, I think, understanding that Paul probably didn't even deserve to be on trial at all, he gives Paul this little bit of freedom. I think we need to be thankful for the graces that God gives us, even through uh, rotten, corrupt dictators. And here are some graces that he has. We know that he's visited in prison. Do y'all know how long this prison stay takes, how long it is? Four years. Paul is going to be in prison for four years. He's going to write what we call the prison epistles. He's going to write First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, uh, epistles. You can add in Philemon. But he's going to do all that in jail. Uh, God had told him you're going to testify before kings and rulers. And he's doing that right now. He's in jail for four years. Can you imagine being a Roman centurion? And being chained to Paul over a four-year time. Wonder how many times you'd hear the gospel. I, I guarantee you, people that came to see Paul were people who were birthed into the family of God. Because Philippians talks about it at the end of Philippians 4. That were actually saved by grace through faith because of this man's witness being in jail for four years. So that's what's going on. When they ask, uh, here we have again... We have Felix and Drusilla. And what do they want to do? They want to hear about faith in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Does Paul pull out the four spiritual laws? 
Does he pull out an eternal life track from SBC Life? Well, this is very, very interesting and should be something that we think about as the people of God. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off. Zelicius comes, verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. So two more years there, that particular place. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Notice now here, Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ. All right, don't, don't say something it's not saying, nor miss what it is saying. They're asking about what is faith in Christ. And Paul's going to give them righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Now, if you were dealing with a governor, what do you think he would be talking about when it comes to righteousness? I think he would be talking about carrying justice in the correct way. That would be ethical justice-making. In other words, Felix, you don't want to miscarry judgment. You know why? Because the ultimate judge is the one you're going to stand before one day. Now, it's highly possible that Paul interjected justification by grace through faith alone and righteousness that can only be found in the Lord. We're not, I would not say that he didn't do that at all. He probably talked about imputed righteousness. Is that a scary term to you? If you know the Lord, that's the righteousness you have. It's been imputed to you. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't have anything in you to deserve it. It was imputed to you based upon Christ's work on Calvary. Right? You have an imputed righteousness that made you innocent before God. And there's no question he probably talked to the governor about that too. But this guy's an administrator of justice. He talks about what's supposed to be right and true. And Paul tells him what real truth and righteousness is all about. Right? Ethical decisions. But he also talks to him about self-control. Well, have you ever made self-control one of the pillars that you use to present the gospel to someone? Mm. Self-control. God loves you, we say, and has a plan for your life. That's what we usually say. But Paul said to Felix, dude, you got a self-control problem. you got a lust problem. This woman that you're married to now is not your first wife. She's not your second wife. She's actually your third wife. Check your history. You'll find that out to be true. And so this is a reference to lust and adultery. And then we find the biggie, the coming judgment. One day, O oh, excellent Felix, you will stand before the king immortal. And you're going to give an account for your life. And you will end up in heaven or hell. Folks, did Paul miss the mark here when he shared the gospel? Not at all. The Bible says Felix became terrified. Maybe we need to have a little bit of a lesson to figure this out. Again, Drusilla was Agrippa's daughter. Whew. Herod Agrippa's daughter. She left her first husband because she was persuaded by Felix to do so and to marry him. And again, Felix had been married three times before this one. Felix was known for cruelty and oppression and the propensity to do political favors no matter if it was justified and right or not. He ignored justice. Do you think Paul was aware of this? Do you think Paul walked into this room with a fundamental conviction that I've got to get this dude lost before I can get him saved? And thus is true for us today. 
If a person never understands that they are lost before God, they cannot be saved. And what are we trying to do when we give the gospel? Are we trying to give an easy believism thing that God loves everybody? He's got your picture on his refrigerator. That's the kind of, moti- that's the kind of motive that the pastors have that, that, that missed the, go- miss the goal of the gospel. Totally. The reason he wanted to get Felix lost is because he needed Felix to understand, understand his need for a Savior. And you don't have a need for a Savior, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not lost. Jesus said, the righteous don't need a physician. That's what he told the Pharisees, right? Of course, he knew they were lost. But the gospel is set forth to the hearer with an understanding that you've got to be forgiven before God. We don't talk much about conviction of sin. We don't talk much about lust separates us from God. That we've got a self-control problem. We don't talk about much that we've broken the law of God. That's not given much in gospel presentations. That's offensive. In our world, nobody's ever broken a law, right? That's the way we view it. He also wanted to remind him about who the judge is. So Paul certainly is talking about faith in Christ, isn't he? But he's talking about why we need faith in Christ. The Puritans, write this down, used to teach that the law was the needle that made way for the gospel thread. If you never understand the law, you will never understand the gospel. And the law says that we're all dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible says that apart from the law, you cannot understand your need for righteousness. The Bible says apart from the law, there is no knowledge of sin. Are y'all tracking with me? And why is Paul doing this? Because before you ever give gospel, you've got to give the law. We have to know that we've broken the law of God, that we're in need of a Savior. And here's the glorious news about Jesus. He obeyed the law completely. He did what we could never do. You know full well when you see the ten words, the ten commandments written out, that you've broken every single one of them. If not, act, not in a physical act, you've done it in your heart. And if we get what we deserve, we get hell. But aren't we thankful for Jesus? I want to remind you that there is a conviction that doesn't lead to saving conviction. Because if you just have jail sorrow and a, and a somewhat of a conviction, but you don't turn to Christ in repentance, then you're not saved. And I'm sure Felix felt a little bit of that conviction, did he not? Because the Bible says he's terrified. I mean, get out of my presence. I can't take this anymore. People that are of power and have control want to be in control. And all of a sudden you tell the one in control that you're not in control. That actually there's a righteous judge that's the king of the universe. And one day the Bible says, according to the resurrection of the day, a general resurrection, that we're all going to stand before him. And this is what he's preaching to him. Perhaps old Felix thought about Paul's missionary money gift. Y'all remember that? I told you about a gift. There's no telling how much money Paul had. But Paul brought it from all the churches to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And there's a good chance that Felix knew about this. Isn't this contradictory? You're going to stand before the great white throne judgment one day. And Felix turns around and says, hmm, maybe I can bribe this rascal. Get me a little money. He's a walking contradiction, isn't he? And so are you. And so am I. I don't care how bigoted you think you are, how high you raise your head, you are the same way. 
a lot of times. We are all the same way. Living, walking, breathing contradictions. God, you're king. Now, what about a bride? Don't we live that way so often? So be careful. Be real careful. Felix had a motive. He wanted a bride. He loved his sinful ways more than the truth that Paul just preached to him. So he leaves Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Boy, what a great guy, right? He just leaves him in prison. And uh, again, in just a few years, he's going to be one that is thrown out of office because of provoking the Jews to an insurrection. And his brother is going to save his life. Otherwise, he would have been killed. So here we have two men. We're closing up, okay? We have Paul and Felix. Paul is the man who lives by the word of God. Paul is the man who has a good conscience before God and men. Uh, he realizes he has to keep a short account between him and God. He is a man of principle, deep conviction. He does what he does because he believes something. Isn't that awesome? In our world to believe something. Could Paul had said things before Felix that could have aided in his release? Oh, he could have said to Felix, Felix, you just need to get in touch with your self-image. And just have a positive attitude in life. This is what God wants for you, man. Remember, God's got your picture on the refrigerator. I mean, you, you got it whooped. He could have tweaked the message of the gospel so slightly in order to be on Felix's good side. Paul only had three strings on his guitar. And those three strings were righteousness, by which no man will ever see God without it. Self-control, meaning that, uh, Felix, you're guilty of sin. You know it, and I know it, and your th other three wives know it. Everybody knows it. Just like Jesus when he confronted the woman at the well. You had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your own. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God must convict the heart of sin before you can ever be saved. Right? So here, Paul refused to bend on these subjects. What kind of message did Felix and Drusilla need in order to have faith in Christ? They needed a message of law and grace. Aren't you so thankful for grace? Aren't you? The law condemns, folks. If you get what you deserve, it will be eternal punishment from God in a place called hell. But the provision of the gospel is that the Son of God would come to save sinners. And that's all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul stood there that day in integrity and truth. What Paul preached to Felix and Drusilla was what Paul actually lived in his life. His goal was not just to talk about Jesus. His goal was to live like Christ. Should be our goal. He stood before one of the most powerful men in the world. And wasn't afraid at all to tell him he was a sinner. And that he was in need of a savior. Paul was a man of integrity and conviction. What are we? He spoke the truth. But then you have Felix. Felix lived a life of convenience. He does what he does. With some measure. Of spiritual awareness. And he would have had somewhat of the same spiritual awareness. That most of the TV evangelists have today. I don't make any bones about it. You have to tell the truth. And the fact of the matter is, that seems to be a little bit of what Felix had. A little bit of spiritual awareness. Now give me your money. Is this preaching to anybody? That's basically what they say. 
They don't, have, they don't hardly ever preach anything about Christ and about the gospel and about salvation and about sin and about coming judgment. But they do say, hey, let's have this little infomercial and uh, send me your money. I.e. Jim Baker. And the list goes on and on and on. They too will stand before the great white throne. They too will stand before the king. And they're going to give an account for being swindlers. They're going, to be account- they're, going to hold- they're going to be held accountable for what they did with the money that God's people gave them. Sad. Sad. This little bit of spiritual perception. He gets rattled when he hears the truth. But he pushes Paul away. Why? Because the gospel made him uncomfortable. The good news of the gospel. Here's a man who takes bribes and miscarries judgment. He doesn't live by principles. Ethics. He lives by whatever he can to take advantage of other people. So what kind of person are you? Are we an Acts 24, 16 kind of person, like Paul? I do my best to have a good conscience before God and men. Uh, I live by conviction and principle. I don't just talk it, I live it. Or are you more like Felix? That's an interesting, Paul, that you would give me the gospel, but it's making me uncomfortable, so get out of here. That was Felix's response. The scales of truth. One day we'll answer that question for all of us. What kind of person are we or not? Are we? We're going to be weighed. By what comes out of our mouths. We're not going to be weighed by what comes out of our mouths. Those scales are going to be weighed by what comes out of your life. Confession. That doesn't lead to heart change. It's not real confession. We're going to be weighed. Everybody in here. Felix chose the path of least resistance. Because it made him uncomfortable. God knows what it takes for us to take a bribe in our conscience. Doesn't he? He knows it. He knows if we're true to the people that, that we plant, claim to be. He knows truly what's underneath all that skin I see looking at you. And he knows what's under mine. He knows us perfectly. He knows whether or not we're people who will go to sleep tonight with a good conscience before God and men. God knows it. Do you believe in such a way that it affects the way you live? That's the test of truth. You only believe that part of the Bible that you live. Truly. Paul before Felix, man of integrity, truth. Felix, you're making me uncomfortable with all this preaching on the gospel. I don't want to hear about righteousness because I'm not dealing righteously with anybody. I don't want to hear about self-control because I'm sinning. Right? He didn't want to hear about these things. He didn't want to hear about coming judgment. But aren't you thankful, if you're saved, that that judgment's taken care of? As a matter of fact, that judgment was placed on Christ in order for you to be saved. Isn't that awesome? Would you come to Christ today? Would you trust Jesus only for salvation? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the word. Lord, help us all. Lord, that, that microscope. Lord, that, uh, the, the perfect law of liberty, your word. Father, help us look into it. Lord, from pastor to person to whoever's in this auditorium, Lord, all of us need to think deeply about what Paul had to say. Father, we do thank you for the Christian faith and the gospel. Bad news is, we are lustful people. Bad news is, we're all sinners. We're all going to stand before you as the judge. The great news is, you did something about it. And that awesome plan uh, wasn't created in a vacuum. Your word tells us 
that the Old Testament basically is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he, the Son of God, would leave heaven at your appointed time, Galatians 4, 4. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. If we remain under the law, we won't, we're lost. But thank you for redemption. That you came in the fullness of time to redeem us from under the curse of the law. And the Bible says that you became a curse for us. Deuteronomy 18 says that cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. But you became the curse. Not because you sinned, but because of our sin. God help us to glory in the gospel. That you will become a curse. So that the law's demands might be met. God thank you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.